Spencer. This past weekend, I was at the Colorado Classic, walking around in the pits at the race, talking with riders, team managers, mechanics. You know, I saw a lot of mechanics using Feedback Sports' sprint repair stand. That's that stand where you like take off the front wheel, put the bike in there, you can wash it down. Trek Segafredo's team, in fact, bunch of them out there and look really cool. Yeah, it's the standard choice for Trek Sigafredo, a lot of Sudol as well as quick step floors. And um, like all Feedback Sports products, ready to go right out of the box. First time you set it up, super easy. It has this great feature of 360 degree rotation for washing bikes. Uh, fork mounted stands, really secure. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a real easy way to set up your bike for any sort of maintenance or washing or any of that type of stuff. Yeah, real pro looking setup. I tend to use those ones that clamp onto the top tube or the, uh, you know, the seat tube. And I'm always scared yeah. that something bad's gonna happen. It is a pro looking setup, but you don't have to be a pro mechanic to use this stand. It's really straightforward. And and they work with a lot of great local bike shops that can help you set it up, Fred, which maybe you should have them help you with. Well, well, thanks to Feedback Sports for sponsoring this week's episode of the Villain News Podcast. Guys, let's get on with the show. Uh, it's the Villain News Podcast. I am Fred Dreyer. I'm back. Back, back, back. Back in the saddle again, boys. Uh, you're listening to the Villain News Podcast. We're here in the bowels of the Vela News World Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado, and I am staring at Dane Cash and Spencer Paulison. Guys, are you glad to have me back in your lives? Yes, totally. So fun to run around the Colorado Classic with you this weekend, Fred, and talk to all these teams and riders and, you know, get the get the beer at the VIP tent, get mm. sunburned and all that sort of stuff. It was great. Listeners take note, both of these guys are shaking their heads at me emphatically and they know gesture saying that no they are not glad to have me back in their lives they wish i was still on vacation but alas my vacation has come to an end and i'm back at work so guys we have a lot to talk about on this week's episode of the podcast uh we had the colorado classic going on this past week and weekend where we were able to connect with lots of riders team directors managers people from the world of domestic racing and come away with some Ah, uh, with some stories. Uh, one of those stories is that the domestic racing season, Dane, is not looking particularly healthy going into 2019. It's a real bummer to me because I love the domestic racing scene. I love races like the Tour of Utah, Colorado Classic, Tour of California, being able to rub elbows, go into VIP tents, and just, just basically saunter up to riders and talk to them. Dane, how does that compare to the Tour de France? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit different. The, the one thing with the Tour de France that struck me the most this year, my first tour, by the way, uh, the amount of security and the amount of just hoops you got to go through to talk to people. And in a race like Colorado Classic, if you want to go up and chat with, you know, Peter Stetna or Taylor Finney, you could do it. Yeah. Not so easy at the tour. It's just, there's just so many more things and people around. You know? A lot of other smelly journalists mm. there that like mm -hmm. elbow you in the side to try and get the scoop while you're trying to talk to someone. So we're going to talk about the domestic racing scene. Uh, we're also going to talk about La Vuelta a España because the Tour of Vuelta. Spain starts this week. And Spencer, this is, uh, you know, usually the time of year uh, when the Vuelta releases its amazing sizzle video. Uh, that's like that, the get hyped video to get everyone pumped up about the Welta España. And all every year accompanying the Welta sizzle video is an amazing Spanish pop song written specifically for the Welta that we tend to rock out to in the office. Spencer, what's your assessment of the Vuelta's pop song for 2018? Good question. And for starters, I have to really say that I put myself in the hot seat for this one because I guess this track came out like a month ago. Oh, jeez. Which, well, I guess that was during Tour de France, so not a great time to launch it, uh, you know. Shots, not exactly Beyonce dropping shots her... Shots fired uh, at the Vuelta, but um, dropping I don't tracks. know. This year's one, let's let's pump up the beats for a sec. Oh, damn you two ad. Never mind. The Weltas this year, it doesn't have the same sort of vigor and excitement of the 2016 anthem, mm -hmm. which is really the high water mark. You can't touch me. that one. Um, yeah. Last year's was was okay. It was uh, it had a nice scene of like guys recycling, yep. a little BMX action. Uh, getting a little guitar. I think that's very pleasant. It, it's more, yeah, you know, it just doesn't get me like excited to race a bike. It's it's just a little more of a chill out type. Oh, yeah. This is like the rest day track. This is what the guys maybe will listen to on the rest day. 
It's got a nice beat to it, though. They're sitting on the beach listening to this. They're not exactly climbing Unglaru. Yeah, yeah and yeah. in fact, she's on the beach right now singing Well, we better turn this off before it gets lodged in my brain like an earworm just forever. Because I got to say, I still have the 2016 Welta mm. song stuck in my head two years later. Oh, I was whistling it today. Oh, it's great. Amazing great. track. Uh, listeners should go find that on YouTube and then prepare to have that haunt your dreams for years <laughs> to come. <laughs> Let's get into it. This past weekend, we had the Colorado Classic four-day race. Both men's and women's races take part in our backyard, Colorado. Dane, you covered all four stages of the race. It was won by United Healthcare's Gavin Mannion on the men's side and Katie Hall on the women's side. But Dane, take us into this race. What uh, what was the action of the race, and what stood out to you about this race? Yeah, sure. The uh... I think the GC picture was really, it was kind of just down to one day of racing on both sides. So if you were looking for a really thrilling GC race where the lead changed hands, that kind of thing, I don't know that this was the race for you. That said, the stages themselves from a, you know, a stage winning perspective were all pretty interesting. Uh, so the race started with two days in Vail and then finished with two days in Denver. And uh, honestly, most of those stages were pretty, pretty great from like a interesting final 30 minutes perspective, which is kind of all you can really ask for from a bike race, I think. Uh, Gage Hecht went in that first stage. That was a great opener. That was exciting. Yeah. That, I was that on the edge of my seat at that yeah, one. Definitely. Uh, he kind of outfoxed a bunch of teams, including United Healthcare, which, I mean, that team otherwise kind of dominated this race. So, uh, you know, hats off to Gage Hecht. And then, yeah, the, the time trial was, was pretty interesting to watch. Uh, United Healthcare just crushing it, men's and women's side. And then it was kind of that set the tone for the rest of the race. Those two teams kind of held on to their leads. I will say that the uh, the Lookout Mountain stage, stage three, was uh, it was an interesting one. It didn't really have a huge impact on the GC, but there was some uh, exciting attacks. There, there was some you know uncertainty up until the last maybe 10 minutes about what was going to happen there. So a lot of good battles, even if it didn't really see a whole lot of GC shakeups. Yeah, it looks like on that stage three, uh, Team EF Education for Pack Cannondale really took it to United Healthcare. Uh, it's the, the stage started with flats, then there was a sizable climb and then kind of lumpiness into a flat finale. And EF put all of their GC guys in the breakaway. And three really, three yeah, guys, right? Or yeah, and four. really three. drove it and made UHC have to chase Sergei Tvetkov doing a lot of work for his teammate Gavin Mannion. And then at the end, it was kind of up to Mannion to uh, preserve his lead on his own, right, well, Dane? And also there was that Israel cycling guy who was just so happened to be pulling really hard at the front of the peloton, too. Be curious to see how much he got for that little... Uh little pick-me-up. Allegedly, Spencer. Allegedly. But to me, Dane, one of the stories that sticks out to this is sort of the coming of age of Gavin Mannion. He's been a guy that's been on our radar screens for years and years and years. Famously came up through Axel Merckx's development program. Has ridden for, oh, the baby Garmin team. Was on Jelly Belly. He's been in the domestic scene for a long time. Has been close, but has never really popped off that win. I know that you interviewed him a few times uh, after these stages. You know, what's your sense of what this victory meant for Gavin? Well, it was definitely the biggest win of his career. He said that a couple of different times. And, and you pointed out, I mean, he's been a promising rider for a while. He's been a guy that, that people like us have talked about for a while. But it's one thing to be promising and to get, you know, fifth or sixth at a Colorado Classic or a Tour of Utah, etc. To actually come out and win and prove that you can win the race. That's a big deal. And I think for Mannion to do that, particularly now when his team is probably disappearing, uh, that's a really big moment for him. And, uh, you know, he kind of touched on it a little bit how... Being a developing rider back in the day, he did see a number of his peers go on to do big things and get those big contracts, and he was kind of left behind a little bit for a little while. I, I, he didn't seem to think he was going to the World Tour next year, but I do think this sets him up for a, at least a nice couple of years of you know, stepping up maybe another level or uh, having other teams pay attention to him a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, Mannion's still in his 20s, so he's still young enough to conceivably do that. Whether this victory leads to a World Tour contract, I don't know. I mean, it seems like... The scene's a little bit down, which we're going to get into, which might limit his ability. Uh, on the women's side, Katie Hall, boy, went in her fifth stage race of the year. Uh, Dane, you know, she won that time trial. And then what what happened after that? Yeah, so I don't think it was any surprise that she won the time trial because she's the best climber here. She's kind of the best climber in the country. She's one of the best in the world. Uh, but then UHC did a really nice job. I mean, they did have, you know, one and two that helped. Uh kind of clamping down the rest of the race 
And to be fair, there weren't a whole lot of other opportunities for uh, for her rivals to, I think, put her under that much pressure. The third stage uh, for the women, unlike for the men, was it was not the most entertaining, I guess you could say, parkour. It just didn't set up for a great race. It was kind of just a crit. I mean, and so there really weren't a whole lot of opportunities to put Katie Hall under pressure. Not that I think she would have wilted under pressure anyway. But uh, yeah, United Healthcare just kind of clamped down. And uh, wrote a pretty solid final two days, and and she you know managed to win as convincingly as I, I think most people probably predicted that she would. Yeah, you know, on the women's side, before the uh, the race started, the race director Sean Petty acknowledged that the course was not conducive to exciting drama in the GC battle, which is why they had added a lot of time bonuses, apparently, mid-race time bonuses, time bonuses for winning, in hopes that the time gap on that time trial, which went up Vail Pass, and anyone's not familiar with the Vail Pass time trial, it's been used since the old course classic days, starts downhill and flat, and then goes way uphill high altitude. It's a tricky I, one to pace. It's I, really a weird one. Yeah. It's half and half. I have raced it in various amateur competitions and have always taken it out way too hard and just suffered on the uh, on the climb. But anyway, I think they were hoping that the time gap would be a little bit smaller so that these bonuses would have come into play a little bit more. But, you know, you have someone like Katie Hall who's just that much better than the rest of them at the field. The gap was big enough so that the bonuses didn't really come into play. Um, you know, we interviewed Katie last week for the podcast. You know, five major stage races in a year. She's headed off to Bulls Dolmens for 2019 see how she does in the European Peloton. You know, I, guys, I got to say, I'm really excited to see how Katie Hall does in the Peloton. I was so bummed this year when UHC didn't get the invite to the Giro because by my estimation, Katie Hall is one of the best climbers in the world. And I really wanted to see how she was going to stack up against Annemiek van Vleuten and van der Breggen. Well, van der Breggen wasn't there, but some of the other top climbers on the Zonkalan. And now uh, hopefully we get to see that. Yeah, she was kind of playing a little bit conservative when we, when we heard from her this week, saying, yeah, I don't know how many chances I'm going to get for myself, which, you know, to be fair, Bulls Dolmans, that's true for most riders on that team because they're all so good. But I have to think that Katie Hall is going to get some chances, considering what she has proven as a climber and the opportunities for climbing that there are racing with Bulls Dolmans in Europe. It's an interesting team because it's so deep and there's so much talent on that team that I think you have to have to prove yourself for a chance to lead and to actually get a result for yourself which maybe will suit her. I don't really know. Uh, I'm not super familiar with with her sort of way of racing and her mindset and that type of thing, but uh, definitely a strongest survive type situation at that team, which, uh, yeah, I mean, if she can climb, then go for it. I think one thing in her favor with that team is that they don't actually, I mean, for all the talent that they have, not all, not a lot of their big talents are pure climbers like she is. I mean, a lot of their a lot of their gals are great classics riders. Uh, Anna van der Breggen is really the only one who maybe is that same level as a, as an actual pure climber. And they're not sending Anna van der Breggen to every race on the calendar, so there's got to be some opportunities there for Katie Hall because riders like you know, Chantal Black, for instance, aren't necessarily going to be racing those same kind of races, getting those same kinds of results. So I think. There's a niche for her there. I hope there's a niche for her there. Yeah, I could see a scenario in which she's, you know, worker B for the Hilly Ardennes races where, you know, there's a lot of climbing, but it's punchy power climbing, not the type of climbing that she really excels at, which is the long grinder ones. But then it races like the Giro at the uh, La Course if it goes back to having another mountainous route. Uh, yeah, I would just love to see how she stacks up. Sort of interesting the way her skill set as a rider, if the women had the same kinds of races that the men get. I think oh, she yeah. would be she'd be a superstar, she'd be a, a known commodity and and winning all the biggest races because being that power climber, that wins you the Tour de France on the men's side and there just aren't those races just don't exist for the women really. And imagine if we had a male cyclist champion who was also like a PhD in microbiology right. or whatever yeah. she is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that would never happen. Sorry. Mm, sorry male cyclist. Male cyclist. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about the disparity between uh, men's and women's cycling because one of the things the Colorado Classic was trying to do was really narrow that gap and in some regards they got there in some regards the gap in this race Pretty wide. Spencer, you did a great story around that on VelaNews.com. But before we get to that, guys, we got to talk about the state of the domestic pro uh, scene. Because if there's one thing that the Colorado Classic uh, showed us is that, boy, 2019 looks like a real down year. The stories going around the Colorado Classic was that Team United Healthcare was unable to secure a sponsor to carry it through to 2019. Team is hopeful that by the end of August... By the time you guys listen to this, it may be the end of August. Uh, they were going to keep hope, and then at the end of August, they were going to fold. They couldn't find another sponsor. The other story, Team Jelly Belly 
Continental team been around for 19 years, was in the same boat. They learned right after Utah that title sponsor was not continuing and that they also were on the sponsorship hunt. Uh, Danny Van Hout, team owner, said same thing. End of August, can't find one. He's going to take a year off. And then the final blow, Team Silber, the Canadian Continental team. It uh, is funded by Arthur Silber, private investor, who has funded it through its first three years. And I think they were really hoping to find a sponsor for year four. Uh, they've been unable to do so, and Arthur Silber informed them midway through the season that he was not going to come back. Um, I spoke with, spoke with Scott, uh, gentleman Scott Feldman, the uh, owner of the team, said he is in discussions with several sponsors to hopefully keep the team going, but at the same time, you know, not secure footing for 2019. So there was sort of this uh, this fog of depression of. Uh, just kind of bad vibes whole, uh, hanging over the scene because the prospect of so many riders, talented riders, really good riders, uh, being out of a job for 2019. And also what that means for the scene as a whole. Now, we've all followed domestic cycling for a long time. And I think we can both agree that it fills a very important role in the American bicycle racing ecosystem. It's where young talent gets discovered, has the springboard to get to the upper ranks. It's where guys who maybe have been at the upper ranks can come back, make a living, race. Um, it's where regional Cat 1s can have an opportunity to race as a pro for a while. It, for a lot of people, it's been like the, the dreamer league. You dream of getting to do things like Redlands Bicycle Classic, maybe the Tour of Utah. Um, and in recent years, it's just it's just been shrinking, Spencer. What the heck is going on? It's tough. It's really sad to see all this happening because there's a number of top American professionals right now that have relied on continental teams and pro-continental teams to make the eventual jump to the world tour. I'm actually working on a story right now about Jelly Belly specifically because there's a number of really prominent riders in the world tour who owe their careers to Jelly Belly, essentially. Kiel Reinen, for one, is a great example. He's been in Trek Segafredo's team for a couple years now. Uh, he's, uh, he, he told me that he's just the type of guy who had a very gradual progression and he kept improving slowly, but surely as a professional cyclist, but he wasn't some sort of superstar under 23 or junior. So he didn't get any looks back then. And it was, uh, it was his really, his, it was his only way to kind of make that breakthrough. Uh, and then on the flip side, you get a guy like Lachlan Morton, who, who was, he was a superstar when he was a junior and he got a shot at Garmin Sharp early on in his career, went to Europe had some issues with depression, didn't work for him, and kind of last chance for gas basically was going to Jelly Belly and seeing if he still wanted to be a pro cyclist. And he did, and he did well. He won the Tour of Utah. He won the Tour of the Hilo with Jelly Belly, and now he's a rider for Dimension Data. I mean, he literally told me that Jelly Belly saved his career as a pro cyclist. And so it's like teams like that are um, becoming few and far between, and there's nothing to fill that void at this point, unfortunately. I heard a similar story from Keegan Swerble, who's currently on Jelly Belly, saying that after you know, he was on Axel Merckx's development team, had a really rough 2016, had a knee injury, kept him off the bike for most of the year. And he said that no one would even take a look at him. You know, He was damaged goods. And it was Danny Van Houten and Jelly Belly who said, okay, you know, I'll give you a contract. I'll let you race. You know, the pay isn't great. You, sometimes you have to go to strange races. Sometimes you have to sleep on Danny Van Hout's couch. But you get an opportunity to go to the races and prove yourself. And that's what uh, Keegan did. That's what Lachlan Morton did. I mean, over the years, Freddie Rodriguez, Brad Huff. I mean, basically everyone in the domestic peloton has raced for Jelly Belly. And you know that those times of like fighting your way through a tough race in Asia, or just this gritty sort of life that the continental riders lead. I've, I've been told by a few guys that this, this is really, it, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit a cliche to say it, but it builds character and it makes them appreciate what they have once they get to the next level. And, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> They're not, you know, if you're on if you're on a world tour team, they're not sending you to Qinghai Lake usually. Yeah, and so UHC. So the thing with Jelly Belly was that sponsorship had gone on 19 years. And when you look at something like that from a sports business side, you can say, well, the brand got its value out of it because a lot of times when you sponsor do something like sponsor a cycling team and you're just trying to get impressions and get people to understand and know about your brand after five to six to seven years you've kind of gotten your money out of it so the fact that they got 19 years out of it was actually pretty good it's just that 
you know, the messaging came down late in the year, which is what made it so tricky. Um, had, had they come down, you know, at this time this year and said, hey, after 2019, we're done, then that gives the team a little bit more time to find a new sponsor. Now, apparently that's what happened with UHC. UHC found out a year in advance that United Healthcare, a big insurance company, was not going to renew its deal after 2018. It gave the team a whole year and change to try and find a new partner. Now, the difference there is that this is a pro-continental team. So the spend is a is a, it's a bigger nut, and there's a women's team as well. Women's team as well. So if like Jelly Belly's putting in, I don't know, a few hundred grand, you know, UHC's putting in big bucks, probably a million, maybe more, hmm. and that really narrows down the number of companies that you could conceivably pitch toward. And so, from what I understand, you know, management was hopeful and spent a good chunk of the year pitching its brand around to see if it could find you know, a sponsor that could step in, that didn't happen. Now, I also heard from talking to numerous sources that management did inform riders early in the year, training camp, that UHC was not going to come back. So riders had advance warning. But management also kept hope alive and sort of kept the confidence in the riders' heads going throughout the year that a new sponsor could be found, as opposed to telling them at some point, hey, you might want to find a different job. And, you know, the writers that I talked to, some of them were thankful for that. Some of them were a little like, well, I wish they would have been a little more brutally honest. Um, in Silber's case, for example, um, Scott learned at uh, Canadian Nationals and informed the guys at Canadian Nationals and basically said, if you want, you know, you are free to find jobs elsewhere if you want to. I'd love for you to stay with me. You know, I'm doing everything I can. But, you know, this is just the reality of the situation. And, you know, it's, it's a tough situation for riders to be placed in. I, you know, job insecurity is something that happens all the time in cycling. But, um, you know, to be someone who has lived and dreamed to try and make it to this level and then, you know, be told there's a glimmer of hope that it might stay alive, I, I can't really blame the riders for not um, staying hopeful about it. And in fact, we have an interview right now with uh, Travis McCabe. I sat down and talked with him at the Colorado race about what it's been like to be in this um, land of limbo, this holding pattern, waiting to see if your team is going to continue or not. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Travis was very candid, very open about it. A lot, some other riders have been a little guarded. I know, Dane, you talked to a lot of riders and people were kind of eh, hesitant to talk about it. Um, but let's have a listen to Travis. So... Travis, obviously the big story um, around this team is sort of the uncertainty. And um, how has the mood been uh, around the team? And how has the mood been with yourself knowing that, you know, the potential of the team isn't going to come back next mm -hmm. year? I think team, like, the team's been great. Yeah. Camaraderie's been strong. Everyone's still in good spirits and racing hard. I mean, every, like... You know, dinner table, obviously, there's the talk of, like, well, what are we going to do? What's next? Yeah. Where do we go from here? And everyone's kind of asking each other that and trying to figure out, like, what everyone's plans are and where we can go. But I don't think it's affected the racing at all. You know, maybe the one thing it has done is it kind of it's taking a little bit of pressure off of us. It's not so much like, okay, we have to perform. It's like, you know, we had a great Utah here. We can kind of take a back seat a little bit like I know there's everyone's looking at us like yesterday I think it's a good example everyone's looking at us to control the race to win for me but it's like I mean I already had a great Utah I'm still on good form but we want to give chances to guys like Alex in the break and you know Sergey's looking for a job next year so we're trying to get him the GC position so we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket like I think we normally would so it's changed that way but like Staff is still doing everything they can to make sure that we have what we need. You know, everyone's still pretty much treating this race like it's a race and respecting it. And I think that's how it was in Utah. We came away with three podiums, two stage wins, sprinter's jersey, and most aggressive jersey like every other day. Guys in the break every day. Um, so I don't think it's really... We tr yeah, it, we're trying not to let it take a be, be at the forefront of our minds. Have you guys been racing 
for some of the people that don't have jobs next year in an effort to try and get them results? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Saber talked about it yesterday. He's kind of, the team meeting was like, look, we know this can be a sprint. If it comes down to a sprint, we'll work for Travis, but we got to take our opportunities. Um, and I think when you are, when you're possibly going away, you have to, a good director would do that. He would say, okay, this, we need to get everyone the opportunities to get the results and to show themselves so that everyone can land on their feet next year. Otherwise, I think, you know, some guys can respond under pressure and just say, ah, screw it, it doesn't matter anymore, and we're just going to sit back and not race. But I think that does a disservice to ourselves, to the team, our sponsor, and the race itself. So it's been, it's been good to see, like, everyone is still here to race and still wants to perform well and we're doing it as a team which doesn't always happen yeah. you know do you have plans for next year settled not yet no still working on it so is it stressful for you? oh yeah dude it's super stressful that's like it's all we talk about you know like you go on training rides with guys and you talk to them and they're like oh, I can't believe you don't have a job yet or with teammates and we're all like well what are you what are you gonna do I don't know what are you gonna do I don't know so there's just a lot of yeah it's pretty stressful a lot of uncertainty like I, I think I'll be fine and I'm not too worried but I also like I want to I don't know I feel I want to help as many of the other guys too and staff and try to like figure out everything so it's pretty stressful man I think the year definitely didn't go the way I planned. Like, bad spring, and then California was mediocre. Um, Crit Nats, or Nationals didn't go the way I wanted. Crit Nats didn't go the way I wanted. So everything was kind of like, you know, when it doesn't go your way, it's easy to start to doubt yourself and to second guess. And to, I think it's easy to like, kind of just go, oh, well, say this was an off year. and maybe I'll just take a reset and not try but it's like well I don't have a job next year so I need to still train and I still wanted to do well at Utah and Colorado because I love these two races so for me it was like stay focused it's not over keep going and then getting results in Utah and coming on the form here in Colorado it's like it feels good it's kind of like validation that all the hard work's been paying off so some of the messaging that we've heard from team management is that they're going to hold on to the end of the month to see if they're able to secure another sponsor. At this point, do you have faith that something like that could happen? Yeah, I hold out faith. I still think there's a possibility. I mean, anything's possible. You saw it with Garmin. Like, they pulled out a sponsor, a huge sponsor, and now they're, like, back on top and doing great. So I, I think I still have hope in the management i mean they have a great program they've been doing it for what 10 years now so they know the infrastructure they have all the numbers in place they know what it takes to run a program that's x like you know x y and z however big they want it to be and i think if anyone could do it it would be momentum sports group do you feel like the way that these sponsorship woes were communicated to you and the team was adequate Oh, yeah. I mean, they told us a year. They told us last year that this was going to happen. So, you know, we've at the beginning of team camp, they told us United Healthcare is not going to be a sponsor next year. We're actively working. We've been doing it. They've been doing it, I think, before even this year started. And it's just, it's difficult to get major sponsors in the sport right now. So I don't hold anything against them. And we all knew it was coming. So it wasn't like the smart stop days where it was just, the rug was pulled out from under our feet and we're all left questioning, you know, our livelihood and management and everything like that. Now, this is much more professional. Everyone everyone knows what's happening and is, you know, okay with it to an extent. Yeah, I'm just going to ask you, you've been through this situation before. You were famously on Smart Stop, which was a great team, punched above its weight, you know, won a lot of races and then went away midway through the season. Um, what do you remember from that experience that you're trying to apply to your mentality through this experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just staying, staying focused, staying on top of what matters, which is like racing my bike and being able 
being able to have a job doing what I love to do. I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do that. So I still keep everything in perspective. Um, I think the difference with SmartSop was that the management really. Like here, we had a clear outline of what was gonna happen. We had a timetable and we knew like how everything was gonna be broken down. So it wasn't a shock to us. With SmartSop, they were telling us, oh yeah, everything's great, no problems. We have money, we're getting bigger. We'll pay you guys more. And then in August, they go, oh, by the way, we don't have money to pay you. We don't have money for the team and we still want you guys to race. So there's a lot more dishonesty behind the program four years ago or three years ago than what we had here. So here it's like everything's honest up front and I think that's probably the biggest thing. As long as there's transparency between upper management and the team and the riders, then everyone's okay with it. When the, there's no communication and people don't know what's going on, that's when it's just kind of like, why would you do that? Like it's just, it's, that's okay. disheartening. Yeah, you know, basically saying that he's been stressed out and that all of his conversations have to deal with the job insecurity thing. Um, you know, I feel for these guys and gals. That's sort of the same thing that I was hearing. I talked to a couple of guys um, over the weekend about the transfer market right now. And that it's a transfer market that a lot of them maybe weren't expecting to find themselves in because suddenly their teams are going away. And uh, especially at the domestic level, maybe less so at the world tour level, but particularly at the domestic level, uh, you know, people are just saying, this is all we get asked about is where we're going next year. It's all we're talking about. And unfortunately, a lot of these guys, I mean, some of, some of these guys who maybe were already going to be in the transfer market, they're suddenly finding this market totally flooded with riders that weren't expected to be there because three North American teams are now probably going to fold. And that's all of those riders are suddenly now looking for jobs. And so if you were already looking for a job, you know, all, all of a sudden it's this epically buyer's market and it's really hard for anybody who's trying to get a job to get paid if it, you know, if at all. And so there are some other routes um, some symptoms of this right here. You know, one of them is the disappearance of races. You know, if you look at the North American racing calendar, there used to be, you know, it used to be pretty robust. It would start in sort of uh, late March, early April and go through to the end of September. Um, in recent years, we've seen the disappearance of a number of races folding. We've seen the Tour of Alberta, Bucks County Classic, Mount Hood, Cascade. Uh, a number of these races, North just, Star Grand Prix, North Star Grand Prix, have gone away. And when these races go away, each of these races represents an opportunity for a team to get impressions and eyeballs for its sponsors. So, a sponsor like Jelly Belly says, "Okay, how many people are you going to reach?" And they'll look at all the races and sort of estimate the number of people that will be there, what type of media is going to be there, what type of Velo News articles they can get out of it, et cetera, et cetera, and give a rough estimate of like, you know, we predict that in 2019 with this huge, robust racing calendar. Uh, we can reach X amount of people. And when the number of races go away, that uh, really impacts them. And so that is a question I pose to you guys. Yeah, you know, we have some listeners out there that probably care about this stuff, who probably want to see the domestic racing do better. I mean, what are things that, what are things that they can do to potentially help them out? I mean, one thing that comes to mind is you go and attend a race. Go check out a race. You know, if there's a, if there's a big bike race going on somewhere, you know, within driving distance, short travel of where you're going, go check it out. Go cheer for your fans. Go cheer for your team. Go up to them at the, uh, the you know, the in the pits and introduce yourself. Go ask for an autograph. Get your photo taken. Put it up to, you know, put it up to your social media. Um, because at a certain point, that's really what it comes down to. It's eyeballs. Yeah, and, and connected to that, I think, is making more of a of a social media hubbub about televising races. I mean, you hear women, the women's circuit talking about this all the time, how if our races were televised, then we might actually have a shot out here. You know, people people would come to see us. And yeah, most of the men's races are televised, but not all of them, particularly not all of the, the sort of third tier domestic races are not televised. You can't necessarily watch them. And that's a big deal. Um, if you can't go out there in person, the, being able to watch, you know, from 100 miles away, is, that's a big deal. You know, a lot of these sponsors will put clips from the races up on their website or their social media pages, go check those out. You know, it's pretty easy um, just to, you know, give some more eyeballs, some more impressions um, because at a certain point, all that stuff accumulates up and there's someone, there's someone counting everything and tallying it up for the end of the year um, and, and saying, you know, 
yes, it's a good investment for us to sponsor a UHC or a Jelly Belly because the fans of American cycling are really engaged and really gobble this stuff up and really care about it. Yeah, at the very least, you can follow their team Facebook pages and follow their team Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts and and engage with them on social media, even if you aren't actually going to the races or, or able to get to the races. Or you can buy a full team kit, Ooh, yeah. buy, the, buy the bike, yes, and go ride around in your community and tell people that you actually race for the team. <laughs> I bought a Belkin router when they saved, uh, was it Team Blanco way back Yeah, when? Oh, I nice. needed a router, and it was like, well, I can go with a Belkin or the non-Belkin. Oh, nice. man. Go with that's, the Belkin. That's branding right there. Yes. Heck, yeah. Excellent brand. And, and then they decided to pull out of the team, and so, oh, well. So uh, you smashed. Yeah, I got rid of that one. Just burned that router. I got a new one. Stupid yeah. router. <laughs> uh, when Lamprey was sponsoring a team, did you buy a Lamprey industrial yeah, boiler? Yeah, I bought some steel, yeah. you know, as one does, for sure. <laughs> And when uh, Leaky Gas was sponsoring their team, did you uh, have Leaky Well, we'll, we'll yeah. Eh, yeah. Mm, really go down yeah, the line uh, on that one. Leaky yeah. Gas. Uh, Spencer, you spent a good chunk of this weekend talking to female riders about the Colorado Classics women's race. It was a four-day race up from two last year. Um, basically asking them how they thought about the race's push for parity. This race has been very public about wanting to have parity between the men's and women's fields. Uh, what uh, What kind of stuff did you hear? Yeah, I talked to a variety of riders and as also uh, I talked to the team directors as well too, which is very insightful because they they of course have a higher level view of how it all comes together. And um, I, I also spoke with Sean Petty, who's the director of the women's race, and it's a it's a tough puzzle because uh, it does fit into the context of what we are already talking about with this very lean uh, this very lean cycling world that we live in in the domestic scene with teams going away and sponsorship money limited. And that translates into what a race is able to do uh, beyond the very bare minimum of a men's race. And yeah, credit to Colorado Classic for expanding from two stages to four stages this year. That's great. Um, The question is just what this race should look like for the women in terms of the actual distance of the stages, what what kinds of terrain they're racing on. Uh, The real... The, the, the real sore point, I think, for a lot of the riders, and also just in my mind as as a as a person who was walking around watching the racing, was was this Saturday stage where it was the men heading out on a real epic road stage. I think it was like 170 kilometers or something like that. Lots of climbing. Meanwhile, the women did. Uh, let's face it, it's a pretty terrible crit. It was it was it was kind of a garbage course. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't pay money. Uh, as, a, as a rider to register and race on this crit course. It was a square. It was a rectangle around the, the Velorama concert grounds. It was flat. Uh, it, it, there was no one out there. It just, it was uninspired. And um, I think a lot of the women were frustrated by that. It's interesting when you talk to them, they off the record and informally will be, of course, much more candid about it. And some of them were downright angry about it. Fair, rightly so, I would think. Um, and then when you open, turn on the recorder, they uh, they tend to be a little more diplomatic about it and say, "Yes, we're we're happy to have four stages. We want to see this race keep keep improving. We want to see it get better, and that's great." And I, I think that they're right about that. And and also, it's interesting too because the race organizer has the same impulse and same desire to see it be better and perhaps have a road course. And uh, it's that it, what it comes down to is that just that limitation of resources and funds to close the roads to get the uh, communities and cities to let the race run longer through through an already you know congested area. I think that's something to take note of. A lot of times when we see really poorly produced women's races or like you know women's races that are done in conjunction with a men's race where it just doesn't seem like they're trying, the organizer doesn't really realize it or if they do realize it they don't acknowledge it like i mean we see this with lacourse and aso where aso is just like eh whatever you know not whatever i don't you know we don't care it's fine enjoy it whereas i will say with the colorado classic organizers they know it and they want to get better and they acknowledge it yes look we would have liked to have done better on this stage we would have loved to have been able to do this we're working towards it we're thinking about it x y and z like there's an acknowledgement there that as a fan of cycling, I appreciate it. I respect it. I re- really respect it. And I appreciate Sean Petty's candid um, responses to my questions when I was uh, working on this story. Similarly, at the press conference afterward, uh, Ken Gart and the other um, guys who are in charge of the race, they also 
you know, they're like, yeah, it's basically they said it's a work in progress, which is fair. And it's good to know that it's still in progress and that this isn't the end point for them. But I think the other key issue with the women's race beyond the course, and, and also I should say they don't, they don't necessarily want epically long races. They, they understand the fact that a lot of the, a lot of the women's directors, they say to me, you know, a shorter, a shorter race can, can still provoke exciting racing. Uh, but getting to the point is that the, the second and really crucial thing missing is, uh, is live uh, broadcast coverage of this race. And that's something that the organizers of Colorado Classic are kind of promising they'll do next year. I don't think they've fully committed that they will do it, but uh, the, for a lot of the riders I spoke to, for a lot of the directors I spoke to, that was a real missed opportunity to provide uh, visibility for their sponsors. Like we're saying, the sponsors want that visibility or they're not going to stay in cycling. Uh, Katie Compton was a really interesting person to talk to about this. She was actually racing Colorado Classic and she thought that you know, you could leave the courses exactly the same and it would be a big improvement to provide live broadcast online. And she's seen that firsthand with the cyclocross racing in Europe, which in I'd say the last five years or so has gone leaps and bounds toward uh, parity between men's and women's racing because now there's live broadcasts of essentially all the major races, certainly uh, World Cup, DVV Trophy, uh, Super Prestige, I think is getting a little better. Maybe they're a little slower to pick it up than others, but uh, she's seen that firsthand and for her money, get that live broadcast going and they'll be satisfied. And so there's a couple of structural hurdles in the way here for what uh, what the women are, are wanting. And, you know, the, the basic one with the broadcast is just money. Yep. It's, you know, we ha- Jim Burrell said it's sort of in the five figures. So tens you know, of thousands of tens dollars, of thousands said, of dollars yeah. to have additional broadcast for the women, which, you know, may not seem like a lot of money, but they're hoping to have a sponsor come in and punch that out or to be able to have the um, revenue to just pay for it. So, um, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars to be able to get streaming for the women's race. The other, the other structural hurdle with the longer stages, the more challenging stages, something that's a little trickier to navigate, I feel like, which is that races like this are given a specific window to have closed roads. So basically, a local government will say to the race, okay, you have four hours to use this road. And they have to estimate how long it will take to get the caravan through there, the men's race, the whatever. And then they'll have to put another estimate on top of that for if they want to have a women's race. And that will be very much dependent on the like perceived speed of the front of the race and at the end of the race because you don't want to pull riders so you have this like you know let's say hey lookout mountain it's this big long climb and it breaks up the race and we'll give you a four-hour window to get all the men and women out of there when you actually start to do the math it's it's kind of like right on the edge there and so you know this and this is where sort of the unfairness comes in is that race organizers will generally choose the men over the women to be able to say well if we have to say shorter, less exciting men's race in the name of having parity, we're going to choose to have a longer or a longer, more exciting men's race. And the tricky thing as well with this race specifically, with the Colorado Classic specifically, is that the women's field has a much wider range of abilities or riders in it um, compared to the men's field. And you look at it in comparison to uh, you know, Amgen Tour California, for instance, where that is a women's world tour race. So it's a much more high level, consistent level of, of rider. I mean, that means when you go to a race like the Colorado Classic, you have riders, develop rider, development riders, you have riders who are maybe not quite full professional, actually a lot of that in that category. And it means that they're farther off the back when it comes to a really selective race, like a, like a road race like that stage three. So it's it's a tricky one to navigate. And our hope is that the management of the race continues to grow it and continues to, uh, and, and does think like bring in um, live broadcast, finds the, finds the funds for live broadcast and works with the local governments to be able to have um, equal women's stages. Cause that's, I think something we want to say. See, now I spoke to a writer about this, about this topic and that is Lauren Hall. Now, Lauren Hall has been a professional since 2010. She races for UHC. And this race happened to be her swan song. She is retiring at the end of 2018. And I asked her about the um, disparity question and about what she's going to be up to. So let's have a listen to Lauren Hall. Okay, right now I am at the start of the time trial here in Vail. Um, I'm at the team United Healthcare trailer joined by lauren hall 
Lauren, you're pinning on a number which is one of the last race numbers you may be pinning on because um, you've decided you're going to be uh, moving on from cycling next year. Yeah, last uh, road number pinning, maybe. Okay, as a pro. <laughs> yeah, as a pro, yeah, retiring. Um, that was, that's been the plan all year. Uh-huh. So, but uh, initially we were going to, the team was also going to race Gateway Cup, but we just found out uh, a week or so ago that we're not. So it all of a sudden put it all in perspective really fast. Yeah. So it's a little scary. Well, it's very scary, but at the same time, I've talked to a bunch of people already, and it's uh, very heartfelt and warming to know that everybody is encouraging and says, no, it's great. Life after cycling is great. Being on the other side of the barriers is great. You've got so much else to do. And so, yeah, I'm excited, but I'm also scared and sad. So. What was it about 2018 that seemed like a good time to hang it up? Oh, actually, it's been going on the last three years. Like, is this my last year? Um, Thinking about it and talking about it. And um, this year I just knew, like, I I wasn't really interested in going back to Europe. And I kind of know, like, you know, if you're not on that trajectory, then I don't want to just be in the U.S. just racing, you know, for years and years. And it's I'm 39 years old. And you know what? It's time to give this spot to somebody else, a younger gal that, you know, an up-and-comer and somebody else that needs to be racing, not me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you've had a number of high points over your career, a number of top finishes at U.S. Nationals, obviously the uh, victory at uh, Gent Webblegam. I mean, when you think back to it, what's sort of the high point of your career? Yeah, a couple of those for sure. And then uh, the Giro Rosa in 2013 with USA Cycling, uh, riding and winning national championship on the track. But most important, being around all these great women and uh, great teams and that's that's the most important aspect that I'm going to take from this is the relationships, the friendships, and the memories mostly off the bike. That's most important to me. Um, what's your overall assessment of the what's your assessment of the overall health of women's cycling in 2018 compared to when you started as a pro? Is it more healthy, about the same level, or less? It ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Um, but. The strength of the Peloton has changed significantly since 2010. That's when I started my first pro race as a Vera Bradley Foundation. Um, and it's been so much, it's, it's just been this great trajectory to watch the Peloton grow in strength and, uh, and uh, tactics and teamwork. And these girls now, you know, are super strong. And it's, you know, now it's, it's a deeper field and... Uh, different winners as you saw yesterday so that's that's fresh to see really nice and um, you know I, I hope it continues to grow which is kind of unfortunate with UHC not finding sponsorship right now and um, you know but that's again it kind of ebbs and flows I feel like so uh, yeah ups and downs but hopefully you know I'm always optimistic and hopeful as a competitor so how about the overall size and stability of you know the races the teams the sort of week in week out life of pro cycling how has that changed since 2010 um well like with the the start of the cycling alliance um i think we're becoming more of a united front more vocal about what we want what we need um no we don't have to be just like the men's side of things uh do we want more coverage yes do we want more racing yes do we want harder races yes and I think the more we say that and follow it up, I think races and organizers and sponsors will kind of get behind that as well. But, um, yeah, so hopefully that's the way it's going. What are you going to be doing next year? <laughs> no. You got any job applications on hand as well? <laughs> yeah, sure. We need a weekend web editor right now. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm open for anything and everything. I would love to stay in the sport in some capacity because mm-hmm. I love it. I love the people in it. Um, I love to give back. I love talking to the gals. and um, Yeah, so whatever that is, I don't know. I have no idea. You know, you mentioned it before, but with the uncertainty around this team over the last few weeks, um, you know, UHC has been trying to find new sponsorship to keep the team going. Um, how would you describe sort of the mood and attitude around the team with that uncertainty? We're still such a great cohesive unit, and we still – are supportive of each other you know if if riders are going on to different teams or I'm retiring uh, you know we're all friends off the bike so we all check in on each other we have a whatsapp group that we all have uh, some good running jokes and uh, so like I said it's just the friendship that will continue and that's kind of the vibe that we've always had this year is we stand behind each other and 
uh, you know, it starts at the top with Rachel. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I'm, I'm really hopeful for her that she also finds a job. Okay. She'll be missed. She'll be missed. Lauren yeah. Hall, she won Gent Wevelgem. Yep. 2013. Um, always top finishes at nationals. Kind of the road captain for UHC there. And just kind of hilarious. <laughs> just generally hilarious. So uh, Lauren Hall, you will be missed. Okay, guys. Well, we have, uh, you know, lots of stories in the domestic racing to talk about throughout the off season heading into 2019. But guys, let's do it. It is at the end of August, which means the final Grand Tour of the season is just around the corner. The Vuelta a España starts this weekend. I can't believe it. It's already August. I feel like it's still June. Uh, but Dane, I want you to take me through this Vuelta a España lineup and some of the storylines that you're going to have your eyes on because, as always, the Welta is sort of the proving ground for riders on all sorts of different levels of form. Yeah, so Welta this year, as has been the case for the last, gee, I don't five, six years now, I feel like for me this is always, every year it's like, oh, wow, why do people keep underestimating this race? Because it's a great race with a great start list every year for the last several years. I think the, the calendar change towards the end of the year has really benefited this race because the start list this year, just as in the last several years, it's excellent. You got a bunch of big stars from the Tour de France. You got guys like Vincenzo Nibali, Richie Porte, Nairo Quintana. Uh, first of all, you have all these kind of last chance kind of guys who maybe didn't have their their day at the Tour de France. And then you've got a couple of other guys, uh, Miguel Lopez, the, both of the Yateses, uh, you know, people who were maybe at the Giro who are now coming back. They, they took a little time off in the summer. And so big GC start list. And then, of course, on the on the stage hunting side, you've got Peter Sagan, which is pretty pretty exciting for the race because he has uh, quite often in the last couple of years he's gone to the Canadian World Tour races instead. Uh, this year he's decided to do the Vuelta, which is pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know if he's thinking uh, Worlds uh, is gonna it's gonna benefit him prepping at the Vuelta, but we're all gonna be happy to see him there. So that'll be pretty great. Uh, yeah. So the, the the course as ever very hard this year. Uh, a lot of tough climbs. That third week, as always, it's gonna be insane. Uh, but I think we're, we're going to be treated as some good racing just with the great start list and the many opportunities for uh, attacking stages. Uh, not a lot of uh, stage seven and eight at the Tour de France type stages <laughs> at the Vuelta this year, hopefully. And by that, you mean the epically long, flat, boring 200 plus kilometer. You got it. You know, uh, Dylan Gronewagen type stages, actually. I mean, it's fine if Dylan Gronewagen wants to win after yeah, 65K you'd like of flat. You'd like that, uh, wouldn't you, yeah. Dane? you like that guy. I've never had a whole lot of great, you know, quotes from him, I have to say. But oh, it's fine. Shocking. Sprint stages after 60K, fine. But do you really have to do them after 200? Meh. Wait, what about uh, Alexander Kristoff? I feel like those are like those are the oh, total that is Dane good stages. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's bad weather, you know, he can yeah. win those kinds of days. I'm so happy. Ooh, I think I'd rather that than Grunewagen, actually. Here's an idea. Street sprints. We'll just do a street sprint instead of a 200K stage. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is it, it. From a standing start. If the Vuelta <laughs> really wants to be the innovative Grand Tour, they were the first ones to give us these short stages. I feel mm. like they, they really got to get out of the box and do things like street sprints, maybe race against a train, Iron Horse Bicycle Classic yeah. style, mm. uh, bunny hop competition. Um, I, I love the Welta. I'm not going to lie. I'm having a little hard time motivating for it this year. But the the thing maybe, about the- Maybe we should put on that track again. Yeah. You want to play that yeah, again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's play it again. Uh, we'll do it later. Okay, that's I think we need stuff. the 2016 track. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's put on the 2016 yeah. track. Yeah. That's the good stuff. That's the main <laughs> line in it right there. I hope you are all loving that uh, track right there. The thing about the Vuelta is, though, it, every year it sucks me in. Even if I'm having a hard time motivating for it, it's like, oh, hey, look at this stage. It finishes with uh, 25% for 2.5K, and people are just going to be going completely bonkers. And there's some grand, some Tour de France guy there who's getting his head kicked in, and some young guy who's going really good. And so that's... That's the wonderful thing about the Vuelta is that it's chaos. It's just totally cashes in on the fact that everyone is desperate for one last result. And all the guys who flamed out at the Tour de France, looking at you, Rigo Uran. Venga, Ooh. venga, venga. Richie Port. Richie Port. Oh. Look, definitely looking at <laughs> yeah. you, Richie Port. And Vincenzo Nibali. It, yeah. it wasn't his fault, but no. Yeah. That's true. All these guys are looking to grab one last result. And so you have everyone on really weird levels of form. You know, the. The Tour de France is the only race all year where you can say that everyone's on top form. 
Everyone's on top form. True. And like the Jiro, a lot of times, most people are on top-ish form. You know, there's definitely people who are using the Jiro to like build into stuff. But the Vuelta is just like, oh man. Grab bag. Such a long grab bag. Just suspect form. You never know. You're like, oh, Roman Bardet's here. He's going to be great. He's out the back. Oh, you know, some guy I've never heard of is here. He's, uh, oh, look at him go. Suspect form indeed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I I always get really keyed up to watch the Vuelta. And as you guys mentioned last week, I am so excited to see how Mr. Sepp Kuss does Ooh, at yes. this year's Vuelta España. My guess is they'll probably hold him back. But, you know, with form like that, we could be looking at a potential stage winner there. Maybe, maybe not. I just hope he finishes. Yeah. I think that's the first step for him. Finish that race, get it under his belt so he knows how to ride a Grand Tour. And then on to the next one. So, Spencer, looking at this lineup oh, yeah. of Welta Greats, Yates, Yates, Port. Oh, Movie Star has this two-headed monster. Yeah, the one of the heads got cut off. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. Mika <laughs> Sorry, Mika Landa. Landa. Yeah, the old classic San Sebastian crash. Yeah. Yep. Cracked a vertebra, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He and yeah. both uh, Bernal went down, too. Yeah, he really messed Bernal. up his face and everything. Yeah, yeah Bernal's in bad shape, yeah. So, Movie Star's two-headed monster, Nibali, uh, Mike Angel, Mind Freak Lopez. Yes. Fabio Aru, Rigo Uran. Ah, who you got? What do you think's going to... How do you see this thing playing out? Mm, I, I'd love to see Vincenzo Nibali come out and win this one. It's been eight years since he won his his, his only Welta, and I feel like it's time for Nibali to come back at it and win a Grand Tour. It's been a few years, and he just always rides with such panache. He, he was looking great at the Tour de France. You have to admit, before that, I mean, and anyway, he, he chased back, finished excellent on the Alpe d'Huez stage with a broken vertebra. So it's like, yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good indicator of form and also motivation. Yeah, I think he's definitely, uh, well, he and Valverde both with the Worlds coming up, I think particularly motivated to do really well here at the end of this season, because this is probably their, both of them, the last chance they're going to have at a, at a rainbow jersey. Mm, that's a good point, too, the build-up to Worlds. Yes, I definitely like Valverde, too, but it's uh, it's been even longer since Valverde won any Grand Tour, his only Grand Tour, and that's the Vuelta in 2009, but... Uh, Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think of the Movistar guys, Quintana would be more my pick, uh, given given that he's he just hasn't shown himself in the last few years. But he's I think he still has it in him to, to win a tough climbing Grand Tour like this one. It has pretty minimal amount of time trialing as well. All right, Dane, who you got? You know, I, I, I we, how did I pass over George Bennett and Stevie Cruiseship? Yeah, going to be there. Cruz is going to have some good guys to ride for. Yeah, yeah, so good. How, um, do, you, how do you see it playing out? You know, I, I'm going to. I have a tough decision to make here, but I think I'm going to go with getting the reaction from Spencer and picking Richie Port. Uh, that's what I want. I, I want to see Richie Port oh out there, and I want to see gosh. Spencer's reaction when he makes it through three weeks. Richie Port. I'm not. I'm not all that optimistic, but I do think he's probably the most talented of the of the talented, overall GC. Talented at what? Yeah. What is he talented climbing, at? Climbing, time trialing. Yes. Two of the three things required to win a bike race: staying on the bike. Being what the kind other of one. bike race though? What kind of bike I race? I haven't really seen though? that much what from kind? him. He's a but, fraud. Uh, he's a fraud when it ooh, comes to Grand Tour. Look at that. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Everyone thinks Richie Port should come out and win a Tour de France, yeah. and it's just never going to happen. He's a one-week racer. He's always been a one-week racer. That's how he's going to I heard be. a lot of never going to happen about Gary Thomas before the Tour de France, too. So, you know, there's yeah. a chance. Well, Team Sky versus Team VMC. I mean, you know, Team Sky could do anything, basically. Could Team Sky win this race? They have David De La Cruz and Mikko Kwiatkowski. Kwiatkowski, on impressive form, won the Tour of Poland convincingly. I think uh, Kwiatkowski is a really interesting case. He went to that team and kind of told people he was interested in his Grand Tour ambitions, and people said, hey, man, Pick literally any other team because that one's got a couple <laughs> yeah. of other good GC riders. And uh, I don't really know where he still stands with that. He's a good time trial. He's a good climber. But uh, I don't know about I don't know about three weeks with tough Welta climbs. It's hard to say. Hmm. Uh, I have my uh, eye on some uh, Dark Horses Hill here. Ooh. Phil Bauhaus. Mm. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, just joking. Uh, Manny Bookman. Manny Bookman's got better odds right now yeah. than Vincenzo Nibali. Manuel so. Bookman. That's baloney. The Bora, the Germans on Bora Hansgro have been uh, touting up old Manny Bookman for a long time, and I've been waiting for that result. So I think Manny Bookman's going to have a real ride. But I, when I look at when I look at GC, I uh, I think it's going to be our main man Nairo. I think Nairo mm. need, Nairo needs something. Yeah, boy, he, does he need something? He's thirsty. Yeah. He's won this he's race. Real thirsty. Yeah. Yep. And 2016, last Grand Tour he won. And in today's world of what have you done for me lately, that is not good enough. Mm. So I think that uh, Val, I think that Valverde will be a very good lieutenant for him. 
I think that it will be home roads, a lot of home fans, and I expect to see Nairo do pretty well. We've seen actually Nairo Quintana in the past look good at the tour, but not good enough, mm-hmm. and then come to the Vuelta and be great. So he's maybe one of those guys who doesn't mind that tour of Vuelta double. Uh, and, and I think, although he was a little bit underwhelming this tour, as you point out, having Valverde around to just throw off attacks for you early in the stage, which he did multiple times at the tour, Quintana couldn't capitalize on it then. But if he can at this Vuelta, I mean, that's a really strong team. Nasser Buhani going to be there. Mm. Oh. Mm. Sagan versus Buhani in the sprints. Bunch Two characters. Of, bunch of weirdos at this year's Vuelta. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone stays tuned to VeloNews.com because we're going to have lots of great content from the Vuelta España with our main man, Andrew Hood, out there. Uh, we'll have Gregor there as well. So it should be an exciting race. All right, guys, before we get out of here, we have to do a little off the front, off the back. What is hot? What is not in the world of pro cycling from this past week? Who wants to start us off with a little off the front? Ah, I can take it if you want. Okay. Why not? I am going to say off the front is Western wear. Mm. And that's because what I was told was that uh, the Lotto NL Jumbo team, they had a little bit of a extra incentive to win that tour of Utah the other week where all the Dutch guys really wanted to get some cowboy boots. So the team promised them they'd go out to the Western wear store and get some get some cool cowboy boots and they won. And sure enough, Sepp Koos wins it for them and they're all headed home with some awesome cowboy boots. Plus Katie Hall showing up at the post race press conference from Colorado Classic wearing a really cool cowboy hat. So. Yeah, 10-gallon hat. Actually, that one was more like a four-and-a-half-gallon hat. Oh, but she's pretty small, so relatively yeah. speaking. Exactly. Quite a large hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, for scale, 10-gallon mm, mm-hmm. hat. Uh, what do you, what's off the back for you? Off the back for me is using your brakes because mm. that's not going to win you a race, as Mariana Voss proved at the Vargarda uh, what is it? I'm sorry. The post Nord Vargarda road race. They always change the names of these races on me. She comes into this final corner, like bar to bar with a number of other women and basically just flies through it. No breaks gets at least a three bike length gap immediately wins the sprint handily. That's how you corner folks. That's like one one. It's just don't touch those brakes and just lean into it. Masterclass. Impressive. With Mar- Mariana Voss. Uh, I'll go next. All right. Off the front studying abroad. Go study abroad, everyone. I studied abroad. You know who else studied abroad? EF Education First, they, like everyone on the team. Or? That's true. They studied abroad. Yeah. Okay. Colin Joyce and the rally team went studied abroad. Did a week abroad in Norway this past week for the Arctic Monkeys Tour of Norway. <laughs> What's it called? Yeah. <laughs> Great music. That's it. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That race. Uh, Colin Joyce won a stage. Finished third overall. First American to ever win a stage. First American to finish on a podium there. Uh, Robin Carpenter, also very aggressive. He actually crashed out of a breakaway on the stage that Joyce won. And then came agonizingly close to winning a stage. Posted a bunch of stuff on Twitter. Congratulations to Rally for a historic win for tough Americans. Race. Looks like a tough race. Looks like a real tough Cross race. wins. At uh, the Arctic Monkeys Tour of Norway, powered by studying abroad. Um <laughs> So, chapeau to you guys. Off the back. Oh, gosh. What do I got off the back? There's so much weird stuff going on. I, I saw this video. Off the back is having sweaty legs. Oh, yeah. Mm. When I was hiking in Italy, I had some sweaty legs. But also, I saw a video Not today. to brag. You're in Italy on a vacation. Yeah. yeah. You know who else was in Italy? Wout van Aert getting ready for the upcoming cross season. Did you see him there? No, but I saw this video online. Um. Uh, it says he's in Lavinio, a very warm place. And he rides up on his bike to this impossibly steep hill mm. and proceeds to run up the hill, full gas, getting ready for the cross season, cross doing run-ups. Many of you out there probably do run-ups. Ouch, it looks awful. But in this clip, what happened here is like full leg warmers. Yeah, you don't want to get a you know a respiratory infection. Uh, yeah. Yes, he's right. I think it's normal. It's I normal. think it's normal. It's normal. It's normal. Yeah. Uh, anyway, off the back, sweaty legs. Come on, Walter Nair, just just break out the uh, yeah. Let those guns, let those guns breathe. I want to see those pythons. Uh, Dane, what you got? Uh, off the front, I'm gonna go with Danes this week. Wow, uh, Danes. Obvious reasons. Gotcha. I'd like to think this Come Dane on. is pretty much always off the front, but there were some others as well. That the Danish TTT squad at the Tour de Lavenir. That's the race that shows you who the up and comers are. A bunch of big names have gone through that race. They had a team time trial this year. A little interesting decision. And the Danes won it. Uh, I guess nobody should be surprised about that, though, right? Uh, and then Magnus Court took a stage at uh, Bink Bank. So another Danish success this week. That's a fun one to say. Yeah. Bink Bank. Mm, yeah. Uh, off the back, 
a lot of other dudes at the Bink Bank Tour, actually. There were a ton of crashes at that race. Ooh. Owen Duell, I think he got a concussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stefan Kung up there in the GC, he won a time trial and then uh, proceeded to, to crash and tumble on down that GC. And then uh, Yves Lampard, just in the middle of what was going to be a great week for him, signing a nice new contract with Quick Step. He crashed really hard. I think it's stage six. So ooh, not the greatest way to, to enjoy a little time in Belgium for the Bink Bank Tour. Mm, get well soon, fellas. Yeah. Well, we hope they get well soon. Uh, you know, if any of them damaged their bicycles they could learn a little something from a man you wrote about dane the man with no seat on his bike mm. what was this going on edwin avila yeah he yeah. uh sprinting at the uh colorado classic on stage three uh he told me he uh going around a corner the one of the final corners he was like yeah i was up there at the front i knew i had to be up there at the front so i took the corner got out of the saddle and then i went to sit back down and there was no saddle oh! uh he has no. He says has no idea what happened. He Uh-oh. he said he watched the video, looking for uh, you know the crash that where it maybe came off. Couldn't find it, uh, but he sat down or tried to, and all there was Ooh, was seat posts, which is oof. not the most comfortable thing. Uh, so he sprinted pretty much did the entire rest of the of the race. I mean, it was only a kilometer uh, out of the saddle. Managed to finish second, which is pretty impressive with no saddle. Maybe he learned something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Maybe uh, that's how you're supposed to sprint. I guess he, he did say that it was the don't worst feeling in the world. Sprinting, uh, you know, full gas and that kind of sprint, and not being able to sit down. I could right. think of something that would be worse feeling than that, and and maybe without in that a, particular yeah, scenario. That, that is, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's surprising he didn't crash actually. Uh, but yeah, he got a new saddle the next day, so hopefully he will continue to race and be able to sit down for the rest of his career. New bike racing rule: if stuff falls off your bike, you have to do the race. Keep going. The rest of the race with your yeah. bike like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you have your saddle fall off, we recommend sprinting out of the saddle as hard as you can to your local bike shop. Get a new seat put, seat put back on. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellnews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at facebook.com slash bellnewsmagazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelaNews. The VelaNews podcast is produced by VelaNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the VelaNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout, playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. (laughs) 